I'm playing the song Enjoy. Strumming my pain with his fingers. Singing my life with his No, this may be maybe another robot. Killing me softly with his song. Killing me softly with his song. Telling my whole life. Sure, 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 sure. Is this is this programmed for your favorite song? Oh, yeah, this is a random song just playing. That's right. <laughs> Meet Matilda, a social robot who can sing, read books, and play bingo. I feel calmer already. <laughs> With Matilda, as you can see, it's got a cute baby face. It has a human voice. It uh, engages people with emotive expressions, head movement, uh, gestures. And this is Rajiv. He's the designer of Matilda. He's also the founder of Human Centered Innovations, a robot startup based on his research at La Trobe University. Matilda's purpose is to be your friend, and she's particularly good at making friends with children with disabilities and adults with dementia. It works around the cycle of stimulate, engage, enable, and empower. So it may stimulate a person by looking at their face and, and playing some music to get their attention. And then it'll start to engage them in different activities. When you think of social robots, Matilda is probably close to what you have in mind. A machine you can interact with, who can do what you ask, and who can basically enhance your life. She's got a long way to go before she's cleaning your house and making your dinner. But for what she's built for, Matilda is doing a pretty good job. A German lady, was, uh, she was crying all the time and she wouldn't leave her room. And first, you know, first we had uh, Matilda singing, waltzing. Matilda and you know didn't get her attention she kept talking German and then we said okay let us try a German song I don't know German but I just used iTunes when we played when Matilda sang German song she came alive suddenly and she was started singing with it and the lifestyle coordinator told us that after that day she started coming back to the common room after three years. Designing such complex robots is no easy feat mainly because we have to design them to interact with the most complex creatures on Earth, you and me. So how do we design social robots? And what can a robot teach us about being human? This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson. I'm Ellen Leibeter. What was it like interacting with the social robot? Uh, it was pretty cool, to be honest, and it was interesting how much attention it attracted from the people around us. I think at one point you can even hear a guy who was stopping to take photos. I guess it's not every day that you see a social robot in a cafe. It was pretty interesting to see the reaction it got. But I think first that we should probably explain what a social robot is and how it's different from other machines in your life. So these other machines are like, you know, the self-checkout machine at a grocery and an iPhone. They're not social robots, right? No, they're not. For a robot to be considered social, there needs to be a degree of interaction with humans. Here's Anne Cranny Francis, Professor of Cultural Studies at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Robots are programmed in some way to respond to human behaviours like language or facial expressions or movement, and they then react to them in a way that's predetermined by that programming. You met Matilda, who is relatively basic compared to what's out there. But there are robots who can hold a conversation with humans and answer questions. Hi, Sophia. How are you? Hi there. Everything is going extremely well. Do you like talking with me? Yes. 
Talking to people is my primary function. This is a clip from CNBC that shows an interview with David Hansen, who designs creepily human-like robots. The robot he's talking to is one he designed. Her name is Sophia. In the future, I hope to do things such as go to school, study, make art, start a business, even have my own home and family. Sophia can blink, she can move her lips and face. Her eyes have cameras in them, so she can respond to your facial expressions. But the back of her head isn't covered. You can see all the wires and cables, so there's no chance of her integrating seamlessly into society. Yet. She does look very realistic, and she's programmed to respond to humans in a very supportive and engaging way. And obviously one of the ways is that she repeats what humans say back to them and then adds to that, which is that's, fine. That's a listening thing, isn't it? Like if, yeah. If you're having a conversation with yeah. someone, you repeat and add. Exactly. So they've uh, the computational linguists involved have obviously decided that's a really important way to make the person that she's engaged with feel, you know, that there's a relationship developing between them. Unfortunately, David Hansen ended the interview by saying, and Sophia, you're not going to destroy humans, are you? Do you want to destroy humans? Please say no. Okay, I will destroy humans. <laughs> no, I take it back. <laughs> Don't destroy humans. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, everyone laughed and realized, you know, that she didn't literally mean she was going to destroy humans. But what it made very clear, I think, is that these are machines that interact according to the way that they're programmed. What they are, if you like, machines in human clothing. Because these are machines in human clothing, there's almost a godlike element in all this. We need to start to think about how we design these robots and who are we building them in the image of? How do we program the interaction between man and machine? Let's start with how we build a relationship with a machine first, because that kind of influences how these machines look. So to understand the human-machine relationship, we need to understand how human-human relationships are formed. So obviously spending time with someone is critical to forming a relationship, as is sharing common interests, but nonverbal communication is also really important in getting to know someone. Think about the last time you were at a noisy bar and you couldn't really hear what the other person was saying. So what do you go off instead? Their body language. You know, what's happening? Like, how is what you're saying getting across the other person. Have they understood, misunderstood? Are they completely bored, you know? This is Eleanor Sandry, lecturer and researcher in internet studies at Curtin University. If you're thinking about human-robot interaction, the way that a machine maybe moves tentatively or carefully is more likely to draw you into an interaction with that machine than if it rushes at you, say, suddenly, and you're immediately going to try to step back or get away from it. So just like human-human relationships, we rely on the movements of robots to draw meaning. Maybe we don't need robots to look like humans to interact with them. Well, Matilda didn't look human at all. She was deliberately made to look cute. Big eyes and a big body you just wanted to hug. And I probably have the same affinity for her as I do my pet cat. And that's probably the best way to describe these relationships. We interact with robots the same way we interact with our pets, at least for the time being. There's actually a really great example of people forming relationships with a non-humanoid robot. 
Have you heard about the Roomba vacuum cleaner? Yeah, those little discs that jim around your living room picking up dust. That's it. Here's Anne Cronny Francis again. The makers found that when people sent their Roombas for repair, um, if they were asked, look, can we just send you a replacement? Because of the cost of repair versus manufacture, it would have been cheaper just to send them back a replacement, a vacuum cleaner. And the people said, no, we want our Roomba back. And so some people from the engineering community, but also some social scientists, decided to do some research on people's relationship with Roomba. And they found that people did the weirdest things, you know, like they gave them a day off on their birthday and they spoke to them regularly. And some people even took them on holidays. I find that a little bit too much to believe. <laughs> but people do it. It's crazy. And when you put it into perspective, it's really no different to a stuffed toy. We do tend to project certain characteristics onto the objects in our lives. And that's just another way we form relationships. But I think it is an example of the fact that people have this kind of natural propensity to form relationships with other beings, with the things in their world, in the same way that we do with our pets. Some people do with fast cars. We like actually having objects in our lives that mean something to us. I think we will do the same with robots. But remember, Roomba is just a vacuum cleaner. Yes, it's a robot, but it's not a social robot. But the Roomba does show us that we don't have to stick with popular culture's idea of a social robot replicating a human. We can design robots that aren't humanoid and still form a relationship with them. Someone who's been experimenting with this idea is Murray Villanaki, a media artist and professor of social robotics from the University of New South Wales. In the early 2000s, she designed two robots, Fish and Bird, who were able to communicate with each other and humans through a series of printed letters. This was unconventional because the robots didn't have voices. And Fish and Bird were actually two wheelchairs. When people think about kind of social robots, it's either something that looks like a humanoid or something very cute. So I was very much interested in an object like a wheelchair that is the first kinetic object ever created to support and assist the human body. So it has this very, very strong connection to the, to the physicality of the human body. So it, it's an object that signifies presence or absence of a human. And what Mari found over nine countries and 400,000 human-machine interactions was that people weren't that bothered by these robots looking like wheelchairs. But in that specific interaction, what became more important was the behavior, how the robots behaved. So you cannot have an approach with robotics, with technology, one look and one aesthetic. You know, we have different cultural preferences, gender. I think at the moment we still, we're very conservative in the way we design robots. And because it's something new, as robots come outside of the labs and into society, we need to experiment much more. And this is what researchers are worried about. Robot design that doesn't take into account the diversity of the human population. Um, in general, people want to or say that they want to make the robot's communication as natural and human-like as possible. So they really are looking at what they consider to be ideal hum human communication and then trying to get the robot to, to mimic that, to actually draw people into a very similar interaction with the one that they would have with another human. But what does an ideal human communication actually look like? Some particularly cynical people might suggest that a number of developers in parts of the world at least are maybe concentrating on a, a kind of a white male paradigm of the clear speaker or a white female paradigm of the clear speaker, you know. 
um, which is obviously um, not not the ideal way to go, I don't think. It's it's quite clear that, say, you know, in America, voice interfaces are almost always going to be English-speaking first. If you look at robots that come out of Japan, initially at least, they all speak Japanese. So there's quite a lot of potential for the kind of bias towards particular languages, particular ideas of what it is to speak clearly. Yeah, and ideal communication is no fun. Yeah, God, our blooper reel is the best part of this show. When you put it in just... Media artist, a media artist and professor... Whoa, it printed the wrong... No, it did. No, it's right. I'm wrong. Testing, testing, testing. So maybe we shouldn't be trying to make robots communicate perfectly. That's more natural and human-like. But however we decide to make machines communicate with us, and whatever form they take, it's all a reflection of us as humans. A lot of people are interested in the, uh, in the things that we can learn about ourselves from our interactions with these machines that we create, and also just from the creation of those machines. Like, what, what are people concerned about when they're creating those machines? That actually tells us something about ourselves as well. More on what machines can teach us after the break. Would you take medical advice from a celebrity chef? What is multi-drug resistance? What does your gut say about your mental health? Where did the anti-vaccination movement come from? Think Health, the show on 2SER where we look at the biggest health concerns of today, decrypt all that medical jargon and talk to the people who are trying to solve these problems. Think Health is available on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Health and subscribe. Interestingly, the long-term viability of human-machine interaction has yet to be tested. It's a project Mari Velanaki is currently working on, building a robot that will interact with humans over a couple of years. Mari's interested to see if humans get bored of robots, as they tend to do now. I think for any robot, any social robot, to be able to communicate, to interact with a human for longer than a few minutes, few hours would need not to have a personality, but would need to have uh, an ability to learn and evolve. Otherwise, humans get very easily bored, and after a few days, few weeks, it would be just another toy. According to Mari, you get bored of robots because they become predictable. And that's where artificial intelligence comes in. If the robot can learn something new and surprise you, that's going to keep you engaged. Although in saying that, you really don't want to be surprised by the actions of a robot performing open heart surgery, for example. There's a time and a place for surprises. Yeah, and I guess when we're talking about surprises, we're talking about social robots who interact with us at home. But part of the surprise also means creating something of a personality for robots. Now, whether personality and emotions can and should be programmed into a robot, well, Mari doesn't think it's possible. 
The perception is important, and this is a very good question about the personality. And personality, you know, because these are very big words, I always put them in quotation, personality quotes, right? This kind of performative personality that can change and can go to different modes and hopefully can learn some things and involve, and again, when I say involve as a machine. So I think that is important because people project, but you have to give them also something. But, but, but we have to be very, very careful because this is very different to human emotions. This is like in a system, this is recognition of patterns and it's like learning new patterns. They could appear to be emotional because that would be pleasing for humans. But to be honest, and that's my hum- humble opinion alone, I don't believe that, that machines are emotional. But Eleanor Sandry seems to think robots will experience some form of emotion. It just might be out of our realm of understanding for now. I think it's really difficult to tell how far things will go. I think I'd be really interested in the idea that machines of the future, robots of the future, could maybe be very much non-human others. I don't really think that it's necessarily a good idea to think of robots maybe in the future as feeling pain. And I think it's unlikely that they're ever going to feel pain in the same way that we do. But they might get frustrated with something. They might get frustrated doing something in, in a way that, say, isn't the best way of doing it. So, you know, so that there's no reason to think that machines shouldn't become emotional in the future, shouldn't have their own personality, but whether or not it needs to be a human emotional, human personality is another matter. So we know humans and robots have the potential to form meaningful relationships. Could they be mutually beneficial relationships? So it's like if you look at human-robot interaction, particularly if you look at it with a kind of an open mind, so you're not considering it just as, you know, transmission of information or something, but you actually just look at what's happening, it's possible to learn a great deal about how human-human communication and human-animal communication might work as well. So there's a flip side. Because the great thing about robots is that they can be completely other than human, other than anything that you've ever seen before. So seeing how people interact with something like that is really interesting. They are, no, these were very interesting questions um, and, and very current questions with no answers really, like it, it, because they ha- these things are happening now. You were asking me, and it's really interesting, I was, I was asking myself too. Even the experts are still figuring this stuff out. But in creating other intelligent creatures, it forces us to reflect on what we as a human society actually want. We will get the robots that actually fit with the kind of society we want. And that can be quite deconstructive in a way, quite useful, because when we see what we're producing, you know, it enables us to go, well, is that actually what we want? Is that who we are? And that might have potentially a really positive aspect to it because it might get us to say, well, you know, actually we want more diversity than that. So, you know, we could find robots becoming very useful in that way. Thanks for listening to Think Digital Futures, a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information, visit 2SER.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Lee Bader. I'm Shane Anderson. Bye for now. <laughs>